0: are listening to True Crime Fiction, feeding your addiction to the best of the written and the spoken word in crime. If you would like to support the podcast, you can do so for as little as £1 at patreon.com slash Fiction. For many people, retirement is a dream. A sunlit upland where free from the obligations of work, of caring for our children, one can indulge in things one has always wanted to. Travel, gardening, voluntary work, walking, writing that book, all at a pace which is chosen by you, not by someone else. It sounds excellent. For many, though, with the economic state of the UK, thanks to ridiculous blunders by the government This kind of retirement appears to be much less likely than it was for previous generations. There is more to worry about, the big one being how ends will be made to meet. Will you have to choose between heating and eating? Will your family have to move for work so you are alone and coping with infirmity? Will there even be the social care services available to help you that there used to be given so many local authorities are teetering on the edge of bankruptcy. However, one worry that does not cross many people's minds is, will I be brutally murdered in my bed? It's not a picture that one readily associates with retirement. It's more likely one would conjure up for people already involved in crime, drug dealers, gangsters, People who have done shady things and maybe pissed off the wrong people. Sadly, this is the ending that awaited two pensioner couples in Wilmslow, Cheshire in the 1990s. Cheshire sits in the northwest of England and is close to several major cities such as Manchester, Liverpool, and Stoke-on-Trent, as well as the country of Wales. It is green and leafy, spotted with black and white Tudor buildings, Anglo-Saxon churches and imposing Norman castles, lending a sense of historicity to the area. There is a spit of coast and the county town Chester has recently been claimed by science to be the most beautiful town in the world. You can see why it would be a popular place for people to retire to for a slower pace of life, away from the hustle and bustle of England's commercial cities. It was that life that the Ainsworths, Howard and Bea, wanted and we can probably guess that Oriel and Donald Ward also felt the same. But rather than living out their retirement full of gardening and grandchildren, Both couples were found dead in their beds in apparent apparent murder-suicides. Both couples had held beliefs in euthanasia, the right to legally end your life when they become too infirm or illness leads to suffering too great for them to stand any longer. The wives in both sets of couples had been horribly bludgeoned in an attack that would have taken consistency of strength the husband looked as though they had tried a method of taking sleeping pills and then suffocating themselves with a plastic bag. Both sets of murders were put down to domestic violence. It's not wrong to have this theory on the table when considering what happens. So many women do die at the hands of their partners. However, the police were not willing to consider other possibilities It was instead the coroner's officer, former nurse Christine Hurst, who started to question the received wisdom about the deaths. A coroner's officer investigates death for the coroner, which are unexpected. This could be from an industrial accident, a death in prison or custody, medical negligence, deaths which are not necessarily murder, but the type of sudden death that means it is important to understand what happened and what can be done to safeguard others against the same set of circumstances. The post of coroner's officer had originally gone to a retired police person and in the sexist world of 1990s British policing, Hunt was made to be absolutely sure that she was being watched and had to deal with being patronised and sexually harassed. Then, three years later, she saw the body of Ariel Ward and was struck by the similarities to Bea Ainsworth in terms of wounds and circumstance. Given the hostility of the local police towards her, it therefore must have taken some strength of character for her to pursue her belief that the deaths of both couples had a third party involved, She reports that the attitude of senior detectives was, leave it alone, Miss Marple, it's all in hand. There are some ways in which I can see why the police might have sighed at her suggestions. We are at a point in crime culture where the serial killer is king. They are mysterious, glamorous, frightening. They are the real-life bogeymen to be afraid of and they are indeed very, very real, albeit actually quite rare. However, for those who are prone towards conspiracy theories, the serial killer offers a much more attractive prospect than the mundanity of domestic violence. After all, no one wants to believe the person they've shared their life with or watch their children share their lives with, could also bludgeon them to death one night. That is a world where the element of the unknown is too uncomfortable, too close to home, too difficult to comprehend. Whereas a serial killer, a kind of Halloween monster coming to life, someone it is unlikely that most people would ever brush shoulders with, takes the potential for violence outside of our lives and the safety of our homes and instead deposits it in a culturally ready misfit and outsider. Although violent, brutal and frightening, the figure of the serial killer is a safer place to deposit our fears than in our own inner or intimate circle. It is interesting at the moment that we are beginning to see a creep of supposed serial killers being unmasked as instead ordinary men. In the latest podcast on Bible John, a never caught killer stalking the dance halls of Glasgow, the Blackout Ripper who terrorised women in the London Blitz, and the cases attributed to whoever it is that killed Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia, are all now being theorised to not be the works of some supreme intelligence operating on a far more twisted path than most but possibly acts of domestic and gendered violence that got lumped together and formed a mirage of one man when in reality these murders, rapes and mutilations were caused by many. There were no fantastic beasts, but rather the ordinary type of men who we know, who we work with and who we kiss goodnight. So, yes. I can understand how the police, who deal with some of the worst moments in people's lives day in, day out, may sigh when someone suggests a serial killer. They are, after all, so much more familiar than any of us would like to be when it comes to violence and death. However, The Hunt for the Silver Killer is a book that does not set out to understand or explain the complexities of policing. Instead, it is here to tell the story of the investigation into four people's deaths, the clues that were missed, the inconsistencies and the trouble two women had to go through to gain any attention for it. The second woman involved is Stephanie Davis, who takes the job of senior coroner's officer when Hunt retires. Davis started looking into the case more and spread her net further, to include other murder suicides in Northwest England, murder suicides are rare, but she found 39 between 2000 and 2019, and three had the same sharp and blunt force trauma pattern that the Ainsworths and Ward's had. Davies and Hunt are both intriguing figures. Hunt had to battle sexism and closed ranks to do her job, and Davies, a deaf woman in a hearing world, was used to standing her ground. They are both a crime fiction writer's dream for strong female characters, and a dramatisation of the book would be sure to gain fans for both women. However, the one thing that means it would not yet get commissioned for TV or films is that there's not yet a satisfactory conclusion. It is safe to say that the book puts out a fairly convincing argument for a serial killer. And Collins even has someone in mind who he thinks could have done it. Thanks, though, to the UK's rather strict defamation laws, he is unable to reveal the name It may seem frustrating from those who come from states where defamation laws are not so stringent, but if the person were to be named, it could massively prejudice any trial they could face in the future. Plus, if Collins was wrong for any reason, we could see an innocent person's life being ruined, especially as our culture currently veers towards act-first, ask-questions-later attitude. Of course, the largest question we are left with when closing the book is who is the killer and what evidence does Collins have against them? But there is another quieter and more poignant question that needs to be asked as well. Why did it take so long for the police to see these murders as murders instead of domestic incidents? I feel that much of the answer may be in the age of the victims. We know that people who are compelled to kill will, like a predator, often pick off the most vulnerable or those who won't be missed. Sex workers, the homeless, children. However, we do not talk much about the elderly. In our episode on the Sixth Commandment, we saw how retired Peter Farker and Anne Moore Martin had both their sexualities, faith and loneliness exploited by Ben Fields before he killed them. It leaves one wondering if really there could be many killers out there targeting retired couples or individuals and getting away with it. If there is an unconscious bias against seeing the deaths of elderly people as possible murders – Due to the fact that, well, they were going to die soon anyway, I would expect no one to admit it. That is why the bias is unconscious. But I wonder if it is there floating within our collective conscious and how many people there are out there taking advantage of our elders, maybe even killing them and getting away with it.